0: My name is Heba Morgan, and I'm in Khartoum, Sudan.
1: So Heba, you were no stranger to this podcast. And about a year ago, you and I had a chat, and you told me why you wanted to be a journalist for Al Jazeera. And I'm just going to play a little bit of that tape again, in case anyone missed it.
0: So my father was a diplomat, and... I got to travel around a lot and meet different people. My mother is from Sudan. And I remember when I was in sixth grade and I told my mom that I wanted to be a journalist, she just freaked out. And it was all, it was written all over her face that she didn't think it was a good idea. But yeah, here I am. And, uh, I spoke to her a few days back and she said, yeah, this is exactly why I didn't want you to be a journalist. Trying to report fairly and accurately, uh, sometimes gets you in trouble with certain governments. When you told us that,
1: you had just been kicked out of Sudan, and that was about a year ago. And that's a big part of the story that we want to tell today. Before we get to that, though, tell me about what's happening in Sudan right now.
0: So uh, Sudan, it has a different feel to it, and yet at the same time, it's very much the same. There are no protests. That's one significant difference from about a year ago. And there's a lockdown because of COVID-19. But then, you know, a lot of people were accusing the government of trying to uh, use the pandemic as an an excuse to divert attention from the economic crisis, to try to get people to stay at home so that they don't protest, because there were a lot of protests prior to that. People asking for accountability, people asking for better economic conditions. So people are mostly focused on the economy because of the inflation, because of the soaring prices of uh, of food commodities and the queues for bread.
1: So while it sounds like a lot of the same problems that Sudan was having about a year ago, and then on the other hand, some things are very different. So there had been protests for months and it was the end of the Muslim fasting month of Ramadan. And Omar al-Bashir was just barely out of power. For those that don't remember that name, remind us what his role in Sudan was.
0: Well, Omar al-Bashir came to power in 1989, he basically overthrew a democratically elected government. And for a lot of people, he was, he was a terror. So a lot of people here in Sudan remember him as the person who had a big role in, in leading Sudan to the crisis that it currently is in now. Um, for others, you know, he, he was what his party was nicknamed, the Salvation. But for, for most of the people, uh, especially those who had protested, he was someone who, uh, up until 2019, had to go, and eventually did go.
1: So Bashir was ousted from office in April. And soon after, the Al Jazeera team was forced to leave too. When we talked to Hiba that first time, she was in Juba, South Sudan. A few days before her arrival there, she'd been stuck in Khartoum, banned from reporting. This as more than 100 Sudanese protesters were killed. It was Monday, June 3rd, one year ago today. And we wanted to play that again for you. We originally ran it in June of last year, and it resonated. And with the current protests against racism and police brutality in the United States, it seemed especially poignant. We're working on an episode about those protests right now, and we'll have it for you on Friday. For today, we've done some light editing on this version of the story. But keep in mind, the time references are from a year ago. It's the story of protesters who were killed by their own government and our Al Jazeera journalists who were barred from reporting on it. I'm Malika Bilal and this is the take. Hey, you've been covering these protests there for more than 6 months. This whole thing started in December, and people were protesting because they couldn't get bread.
0: Everything is expensive. The prices have been going up, and there are so many things we can't buy. And then there is the bread crisis.
1: And then, by April, Sudan's president, Omar bashir was ousted, which, for the protesters, seemed like a big win.
0: This revolution was achieved
1: by the people and the army.
2: Everyone will work for a better united Sudan.
1: But their movement has always pushed for a civilian government heading the country, and there's still this military government that's in charge. So let's start at the end of May. The Muslim fasting month of Ramadan was ending, and pressure was building, and the protesters were holding this sit in right in front of the military headquarters.
2: Hey! 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 Hey!
1: There were all these white tents full of people there to protest peacefully. And then on May 29th, you went to talk to protesters like you'd been doing every day. What was the scene like then?
0: Yeah, we walked in, got searched by the protesters to make sure we were not armed, even though at this point we were familiar faces. Saw so some people enjoying cultural dances, you know, people coming to take part in the revolution. They've been calls and they were chants. And we saw the sunrise and some of them were sleeping in different parts of the city and different corners others were awake and they said because you know we're we're the night shift protested we we stay awake because it's our job to guard the revolution at night it's a sudanese tradition before eid that women would bake biscuits so in one corner that's what women were doing they were baking biscuits um to distribute to the people on eid
1: and later that day it's may 30th now Something happens to you, well, to the whole Al Jazeera team, actually.
2: Now, Sudan's Transitional Military
0: Council has also ordered the office of the Al Jazeera Media Network in Khartoum to be shut down without giving any reason at all. Protesters have been staging a sit-in outside military headquarters. So we had finished uh, filming at the sit-in. The bureau, the Al Jazeera bureau, is in a building uh, not far from where the sit-in is. And Al Jazeera Arabic, which is also in that bureau, they had staff who were still there. And then they got a call and they were told that uh, you guys can no longer operate. And we're on our way and we will be coming to confiscate your equipment and lock your offices. So they were shutting Al Jazeera's reporting operation down. So we made our way to the office and when we got there we found a military pickup truck two actually on both sides of the road uh loaded with machine machine guns and rpgs oh wow soldiers around the building and then we got to the fourth floor where the bureau is and we found national security officers uh delegates from the Mil- ministry of information um and from uh, the military council so men in military uniform and they were telling us, you know, that um, you can no longer operate. We asked for a reason, obviously, you know, why, why are we not allowed to continue working? And they said, the military council said that. And for them, that's reason enough. We couldn't even take like normal files. We could only take our, our personal laptops or a lot of things were left behind. And then they closed the office. We handed them the key and we left and uh, the pickups remained and soldiers remained around the building. As you're retelling the story, you're saying it so calmly. And of course, you have the,
1: the benefit of hindsight and, and, and of safety now, speaking to us from Juba in South Sudan. But in the moment, were you confused? Were you panicking? What was going through your head?
0: I was confused. And uh, we wanted to know what what brought about this decision, you know. And, and we were quite worried that, you know, when we come downstairs and, and, and are about to leave, then the military would make a move to try to arrest us. And our concern was that, you know, if we're all arrested, who's going to start making calls to find out where we are and, and and try to get us out or at least make sure that people know where we are? Because at that point, the whole bureau was actually in the office. I remember my colleague Imran saying, you know, we we have to find a way to basically vent this frustration. And especially, um, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, like, whatever I'm feeling right now, I just have to write it out because other than other than that, I would go crazy because...
1: The colleague you mentioned, Imran Khan, he's one of Al Jazeera's war correspondents. He was there with you covering the revolution. He actually sent us some voice memos from Khartoum.
2: You know, it's frustrating not being able to be a journalist and be out in the streets and interviewing people because we're banned. It's frustrating that I can't go out onto the streets because there are so many soldiers around and... And so it's not worth running into one and then having a gun pointed at you, um when you can't do any journalism anyway. So right now, yeah, um I'm not worried, but certainly there's a concern.
1: And
0: I know Imran a bit. He must have been concerned for you. He knows that as a Sudanese it 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 would have an impact on me personally, not just professionally, but personally, and he was he he was very careful to make sure that you know, that it didn't reach that level where I would just break down and and they wouldn't know what to do. So on May
1: 30th, a Thursday, the Al Jazeera team was told they had to close shop. But other reporters and outlets are still reporting and the protests are continuing through the weekend. And then it's Monday, June 3rd. Lots of protesters are out again and they were expecting some kind of reaction from the military government.
0: They were hoping that if they were there in large numbers, then uh, the military would not make a move because that would mean more victims, more people killed. And so they were hoping that a large turnout would deter an attack. And then I got a message from somebody there saying there's no electricity at the sit-in. They were saying that that the, the, the military has cut off the electricity and, and that was not a good sign for them. And they were worried that in the darkness that the military would be able to spread around. And then two hours later, I got the first message from somebody there saying, they're shooting at us. That's how it all started. Or actually that's how it started coming to an end. There were 60 people that were reportedly killed uh, on the first day, including some of them who got gunshot injuries from the first day and then died on the second day. Then there was a figure of 40 bodies that were recovered, uh, retrieved from the Nile.
1: Bodies are being pulled out of the river Nile. At least 40 so far, according to Sudan's main doctors group. I can't even imagine what that is like, being in that moment where you're almost forced to sit on your hands. If you can take the journalist hat off for a second and just talk to us about what that's like as a, a human being,
0: what that's like as a native of Sudan, it was—I um, would like to use the word heartbreaking, but it's that would be an understatement. Um, it, it was like the world was coming to an end. You know, um, seeing uh, the live streams and the coverage rolling. Hearing the gunshots outside, um, our hotel, seeing the soldiers outside our hotel, uh, and then looking at the screens and seeing protesters running for their lives and, and knowing that they, they, they can't stand, you know, in, they've been saying the slogans over and over again that, you know, they wouldn't disperse the city as long as we're alive. Apparently, um, the, the military took that slogan seriously and, uh, started firing at all the protesters, making sure that if we have to disperse the city by killing you all, so then be it, and at that point you feel helpless, Malika. You know they, they, these are your, these are your countrymen, and these are your um, any kind. They were not posing any kind of threat. They just came there to make their voices voices heard, and and there would have been so many ways, peaceful ways to make them go back home. Instead, they were shot down. And then as we were there, watching those videos and trying to reach out to people that we knew. Most of us broke down that day. People died, you know, all because they just wanted a better future, a fair future. Did you personally know anyone who was
1: directly affected?
0: So the first few hours, I knew a few people I couldn't get a hold of. Eventually I did get a hold of them. There are some people still unaccounted for um, that I know. And I've tried reaching out to them and we couldn't get a hold of them. So at this point, and with them not being in any hospitals and knowing that there were bodies that were recovered from the Nile and from the sit-in that the military disposed of, we are just assuming that, that they're among those bodies. I'm so sorry,
1: Hiba, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. So many people have been killed and you and Imran and Al Jazeera Arabic are still there in this moment and still barred from reporting.
0: We were staying in the hotel, we couldn't leave because of the soldiers outside and, and we could hear gunshots going on and on. And this is Imran describing the period after the massacre.
2: It's a little after 10am and uh, the streets are completely empty here in Khartoum. Uh, the brutal crackdown on the protesters has meant that very few people are out on the streets. Very few shops are open. The uh, The protest movement has called for a campaign of civil disobedience. Effectively, what that means is putting Khartoum and other places within Sudan uh, on lockdown. I'm just looking down the street at my hotel and um, there is nothing. There is nothing open. People are scared. People seem to be scared to come out on the streets. So they're fighting back by staying at home. It looks like the the RSF uh, are patrolling the streets, but there's very few people out. Um, And we've been trying to leave uh, the country. However, we've run into problems with bureaucracy, and now the airport is shut.
1: And then something else happens. The Sudanese government shuts the internet down. Hundreds of protesters have been arrested and the internet is cut. So... Now it's not just you and the other reporters who can't tell the world what's happening in Sudan.
0: The protesters themselves can't get the word out. So the internet blackout happened after the attack started. And people believed uh, that the internet blackout happened because a lot of people were live streaming the attack as it was happening. They were recording videos of it and uploading it on social media and so the internet access was cut off so that most of the people who took pictures could not upload to show how terrible that attack was on unarmed protesters you know um, let's let's make it clear all the social media videos circulating around are just bits and pieces of what really happened that day So
1: this has me thinking what what did actually happen The, the military I saw is saying that they decided to disperse the sit-in, pretty much admitting some role in what ended up being more than 100 Sudanese dead, according to the Central Committee of Sudan Doctors. Shamsuddin Kabashi, the military spokesperson, said, and I'm quoting here, we regret that some mistakes happen. Some mistakes. What do we know about who was shooting, who was armed?
0: Well, the protesters were definitely not armed. We've been at that setting every day since uh, April. And so we know for sure the protesters are not armed. The only people who carried arms were the Rapid Support Forces and the military. And protesters said that men in police uniform, but who they highly suspect were from the Rapid Support Forces, were also there with whips and canes and guns. And you couldn't get out at that point airlines started canceling their flights, um, saying because of the situation, they couldn't land. But most of the calls didn't go through because of the, the clampdown on the networks. So it, it was just a situation where we were stuck effectively. We were stuck.
1: Now that you're safe in Juba, have you been able to get back in touch with some of the people you had to leave behind?
0: Uh, like I said, I do have family and friends there. So I do... Uh, I, I've reached out to them since I've left um, and they're saying that the internet blackout is not just making people not aware of Sudan outside Sudan, but themselves, you know, amongst themselves, they they've relied so heavily on WhatsApp messages and checking social media and communicating. They're having an issue trying to pass on information, not just amongst themselves as protesters, but, you know, as as family so, so, and, and they don't know what to do. You know, uh, they hear that there's a civil disobedience, so they stay at home. Then they hear that it's been canceled, so should they go back to work? And then they step out of the house and they find soldiers in front of the house. So then they go back in. So effectively, it's uh, for civil disobedience, whether they wanted to or not. You know, they're worried that at this rate, with the rumors spreading, and with the only alternative being obviously the state television, which doesn't show anything else besides what the military council wants, they're worried that this revolution would die.
1: So what is it like being back in Juba and not being in Khartoum?
0: It it feels like, um, you know, as reporters, we're used to being in the heart of the story and to feel it and live it so we can tell it as best and as accurate uh, as we can. And that is going to be very hard right now. The fact that I'm able to get out and that other people can't, all because they just wanted a better future, a better life and they they're paying the price for it
1: will you go back to sudan
0: yeah uh yes definitely i mean Khosum is one of my homes um i have family and relatives there so yeah i will go back it'll be a shame that i won't be able to report um but i will be able to go back and um see how things are doing every now and then
1: so hiba you told us that when you were a sixth grader, you decided to become a journalist. Did you ever see anything like this in your future?
0: No, um, I no, I certainly do not envision that. I did not uh, expect to to see this, and not worse. Worst part of it all is that you know you'd be seeing and, and, and living it, but you can't report on it. So I didn't. I did not think that I would be living this time. But here we are. Um, Yeah, this is something I did not really uh, think I'd be living through. So fast forwarding
1: about a year. Here we are. It's June of 2020. And you lived through it. Now you're back in Sudan. You're back reporting in Khartoum. How does it feel?
0: There were tense times that, uh, um, I still remember, especially because the office is not far from the army headquarters uh, and there's a lot of military presence. You can, you can see the soldiers moving around. Those memories don't just go away, but, but it's good to be back. You know, uh, it was good to, to get back to work.
1: Omar al-Bashir, the former leader, is thought to be in prison. Is that right?
0: Well, he is currently in a hospital, um, Due to the coronavirus, but yes, he's, uh, he's been sentenced to two years in prison for corruption, which by the way, people were completely upset about and, and, and angry. They say that him being tried for corruption and found guilty, that's, that's not what he should be tried for. He should be tried for the killings of protesters since December until April when he was in power.
1: So how do the people of Sudan talk about those protests from a year ago and talk about the Monday massacre? How do they remember them now?
0: A lot of people that I've, I've been talking to, not all of them can actually open up about it. Um, God knows I find it hard to talk about sometimes. You can still feel the anger and you can still hear the anger. And there are people who are, they, they've, they've adapted, you know, they, they understand that this was a time in Sudan's history and there's a committee looking into it, but it's time for me to move on. On the bright side, um, When I spoke to you about a year ago, I told you that a friend of mine was missing and we couldn't trace him. I was able to find him about three, four months later. Oh. I just spotted him crossing the street. And he was just... And then a car passed and I couldn't see him and I thought that was all my imagination. Right. And then, you know, I had to rush across the street and stop him because it's like somebody was walking away. And then I was like, oh, my God, it's you. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, it did take me um, a month or so to finally come out. But yeah, here I am, change his numbers and everything. But he's he's very much alive.
1: It sounds like there is reason to have hope for many people in Sudan, but it's not perfect.
0: It's far from perfect. You know, Uh, I feel like Sudan is just taking baby steps towards where it wants to be. There are people who are still out there um, trying to provide services, trying to uh, support this government until elections are held in about three years' time. So there's this effort being taken by not just the government, but from the, from the people who were leading this revolution on the streets, the actual people who were chanting, who faced the tear gas and the live ammunition, and, and, and stayed strong through it, you know, they, they still want to see the change that they've been calling for. So seeing those people, you know, still focusing on what they wanted to achieve, it, it, gives, it gives hope that maybe, just maybe, what people have taken to the streets for could be achievable.
1: And that's The Take. Right now in the United States, we're all following the protests and the protesters who are risking a lot to take a stand against racism and police brutality in the U.S. We're working on an episode on just that, coming up Friday. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with help from Dina Gispe, Priyanka Tilvey, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Luke Rohr was the sound designer for the original episode. Our sound designer, Alex Roldan, helped with the update. Our engagement producer is Natalia Eldana. Our executive producer is Stacy Samuel. And our head of audio is Graylin Bushier. We'll be back.